A Tragedy of Trust by David Moller. It was comforting to know you were with her during her final moments. We couldn't ask for a finer, more caring doctor, wrote the grieving son of one of Dr. Harold Shipman's older patients. Those who were treated by the GP thought the world of him. But why had so many of his patients died without warning? His maroon Renault Espace people carrier crested Mottramold Road on that sunny summer morning, giving Dr. Harold Fred Shipman a fine view of Greater Manchester down below. A few tall chimneys and six-storey cotton mills stood out from the city's sprawl on the skyline, a reminder of its past days of glory. Shipman, 52, was on his way to see a patient in Hyde, the quiet, pleasant town where the GP maintained his practice. Hyde, mainly a home for the elderly, as well as a dormitory town for those who worked elsewhere, had its share of imposing structures, including Hyde Chapel with its soaring spire. That was where the doctor turned left, up narrow Joel Lane. Parking partly on the pavement, Shipman grabbed his black leather case and pushed his way through the white wooden gate of number 79. Of short, slim build and with a beard already showing grey, he strode across rough Yorkstone paving to the front door of the stone-built two-storey cottage. He'd known Kathleen Grundy for almost two decades. They served together on the Community Health Council, so it was not surprising that he should offer to come along to her house, saving the 81-year-old woman a two-mile trip into town. It was 8am when Mrs Grundy, trim and auburn-haired, greeted Shipman at the door, then led him to her elegant living room. The visit wouldn't take long. As she rolled up the left sleeve of her blouse, Shipman put a dab of antiseptic on cotton wool, then cleaned the skin on her upper arm. Taking a hypodermic syringe from his bag, he guided the needle to a vein and gently gave her an injection. Mrs Grundy relaxed, leaning back on the sofa. Shipman, meanwhile, packed up his bag, returned to the car and drove back to his surgery on Market Street. Later that morning, Wednesday, June 24, 1998, a letter with Kathleen Grundy's return address arrived at Hamilton Ward & Co., a firm of solicitors also on Market Street just up the road from the doctor's surgery. Angela Woodruff kept breaking down in tears. The idea of her mother, Kathleen Grundy, no longer being there was overwhelming. She tried to focus on what Dr Shipman was saying. He was explaining to her and Phil, her husband, how he had visited her mother the previous morning. She had complained of feeling unwell during a recent consultation, he said. A few hours later, however, a couple of her friends discovered Angela's mother curled up on the sofa, fully dressed. She had passed away. They summoned Shipman and he returned to the cottage. There he examined the body, later filling in the certificate showing the cause of death. Angela Woodruff looked at the certificate in her hand. Shipman had simply written down, old age. She still couldn't quite understand. Quite often, the old complain of not feeling well a few days before they die, Shipman said. She might have had chest pains or something masked as indigestion. Angela was relieved to hear the doctor add that there was no need for a post-mortem. Later that day, as they drove the 80 miles back to their home in Warwickshire, Angela couldn't get over her mother's sudden passing. Just a few weeks earlier, she had been to stay with Angela, Phil and their two sons, accompanying them on several long walks and helping out with the household chores. Phil gently reminded her that what had happened to Kathleen wasn't so unusual. It was almost exactly the same pattern of events with your aunt, he said. Two years earlier, 
Elsie Platt had also died suddenly of a heart attack. She too had been a patient of Dr Shipman's. Angela buried her mother at Hyde Chapel on July 1. Some two weeks later, at her offices in Warwickshire where she practised as a solicitor, she took a call from Hamilton Ward & Co. They said that they'd received a will in the name of Mrs Kathleen Grundy, leaving her entire £386,000 estate to Dr Fred Shipman. The firm was puzzled as it had never before acted on Mrs Grundy's behalf. Woodruff was astounded, for as she explained, she had represented her mother in legal matters, including her estate. When a copy of the new will was faxed to her, Angela received a second shock. Nothing about it seemed right. The language was cold, unfeeling, messily typed on a typewriter with a defective shift key. It would have appalled her proud, meticulous mother. Angela knew her signature well. This one looked far too big. Convinced that the will was a fake, and a crude one at that, Angela discussed the situation that evening with Phil, a physics professor at the University of Warwick. He wondered, could someone be trying to discredit Dr Shipman? He suggested approaching the doctor. Maybe he can throw some light on what is going on, he said. No, said Angela, her lawyer's caution taking over. I think we should do some more research first. The will had been signed by two witnesses, neither of whom were known to Angela and Phil. They returned to High to visit both. When the first witness, a young mother, was shown the document, she said, that must be my signature, adding, that was done in Dr Shipman's surgery. The Woodruffs looked at each other open-mouthed. She hadn't actually seen the will itself, which, she'd been told, was that of an elderly woman sitting in the doctor's surgery at the time. She didn't know her name and couldn't identify Kathleen Grundy when Phil showed her a snapshot. The reaction from the second witness, a burly local shopkeeper, was much the same. He remembered being asked to witness a document, but wasn't shown what it was. Instead, he put his signature on a folded piece of paper. Scrutinising the will, he wondered if it was his actual signature or just a copy. Over the next few days, the Woodruffs visited several of Angela's mother's old friends. All of them were amazed at her sudden death, and all mentioned how fit and active she had appeared in her last few days. Once back in Warwick, Angela Woodruff tried to collect her thoughts, writing down all that was giving her cause for concern. Then she showed the paper to one of her partners, a man well-versed in criminal law. You've got to go to the police, he said. Detective Superintendent Bernard Possels, 45, sat quietly in Stoley Bridge Police Station, listening to his colleague tell him about Kathleen Grundy and the suspect Will. Maybe a case of sour grapes, he asked? A child being left out of her mother's will? No, boss, said Detective Inspector Stan Egerton, 55, shaking his head. He'd interviewed Angela and Phil Woodruff with another detective for some three hours. This one's solid gold. Both men had spent the bulk of their service as detectives and had worked on dozens of cases together. Still, Possels had to ask the obvious. Egerton looked across the desk. There's a certain amount of history on this one, he said, waving a beefy hand at a stack of files. It was not the first time that the doctor had come under suspicion. Debbie Bambroff tried to rationalise the uncanny similarities. After all, Dr Shipman, like other doctors in Hyde, had a great deal of elderly patients, and as such a caring doctor, it was known how often he might drop in on patients just to see how they were getting along. Still, so many single elderly women, living on their own and with no recent illnesses, were dying, during or just after a visit from Dr Shipman. 
Bambroff worked in her family's firm of undertakers. Although she was young, she already had enough experience to know that sudden heart attack or stroke victims who lived on their own were often found on the floor, not usually sitting peacefully in a chair, like many of the deceased she had recently seen. Eventually, she conveyed her suspicions to a local doctor. There is something I wish to discuss with you, Bambroff said, as Dr. Susan Booth appeared in the undertaker's office one day in early 1998. Before a cremation, a doctor from a separate practice must examine the body. In Shipman's case, this second doctor was usually enlisted from the nearby Brook practice, of which Susan Booth was a partner. The two women began to talk. Shipman was one of the most respected members of their close-knit community. Still, wasn't it unusual how often women of a certain age were dying? Booth spoke to her colleagues, who all voiced concerns over how often they'd been asked to co-sign Shipman cremation certificates for patients who'd passed away while the doctor was present or had just left. In March 1998, Dr Linda Reynolds, one of Booth's partners, approached the local coroner John Pollard. I feel concern about a colleague in Hyde, she said, and so do other people. Then she outlined the odd pattern of events over the last year. Reynolds stressed the delicacy of her position. She didn't want to do or say anything that might affect any future working relationship with Shipman, or that could be construed as defamatory. Pollard understood. As far as I am concerned, he said, if nothing comes of this, it will be as if we have never spoken. He contacted the Greater Manchester Police, but urged absolute discretion. An investigation was opened. Detectives were told that Dr Shipman had signed 19 death certificates in the previous six months. In fact, as they would only learn later, the real figure was 30. In any event, the medical records of only 14 of the 19 deaths were located by public health authorities, and they contained only sketchy details of the circumstances surrounding the deaths. There didn't seem to be any disturbing pattern, and in any case, most of the dead had been cremated. After several weeks, the inquiry fizzled out in April 1998. From a police point of view, Stan Egerton said to Possels, it was always going nowhere, given that the detectives couldn't interview the doctor himself, couldn't look at all of his medical records, and couldn't interview the relatives of any patients who had died. Possels picked up a photocopy of the Grundy will, noting that the box indicating a desire for cremation had been filled in. However, in the event, this did not happen. Thank goodness she was buried, thought Possels. Cremation would have neatly destroyed much of the evidence. As if reading his mind, Egerton cut in. There's only one way we're going to clear this matter up, he said, and that's with an exhumation of Mrs Grundy's body. The rain was descending in an almost continuous sheet when the generator rumbled to life and the unnaturally bright arc lights were turned on. Through the blackness, Egerton witnessed eerie shadows thrown onto the ancient graveyard by the tall spire of High Chapel looming above. It was 2am on Saturday, August 1, and Egerton, wearing gumboots and anorak, had taken shelter under a golf umbrella. Around him was huddled a gathering of police officers, undertakers and workers from the Specialist Exhumations Company. They watched the mechanical digger churning up great swathes of the sodden lawn as it went towards Kathleen Grundy's grave. Several hours later, hidden under a white tent, the coffin was eased from the dank earth and slipped into the back of a van. The post-mortem began at 8.30am. Police teams later searched Shipman's surgery and home. It was nothing dramatic. Two detectives simply waited in an unmarked car 
until the doctor had dealt with the last of his Saturday morning patients and was about to lock up. Shipman registered no surprise at seeing them, just a gentle smile as they read out the search warrant. Back inside the surgery, he walked to a cupboard and produced a small manual typewriter. I believe this is what you are looking for, he said. Then, as if reading their minds, said, Mrs Grundy borrows it from time to time. It was the typewriter used for her last will. Five miles away, in the garage of Shipman's house, police found boxes and carrier bags stuffed with the medical records of patients who had died. West Penine Health Authority was aware that Shipman was storing them, but presumed that they had been filed in his surgery. Postles thought about the violent, blood-splattered deaths he had investigated. So unlike the immaculately dressed old woman, laying peacefully on a sofa in the comfort of her living room. If this was a murder case, it was unlike any he'd worked on before. Maybe there's nothing there at all, he thought. The forensic examination of Kathleen Grundy's remains would tell, but that would take several weeks to complete. In the meantime, they had better learn all they could about Dr Fred Shipman. In the summer of 1963, Vera Shipman was dying of lung cancer. Her middle child Fred would sit beside her in their Nottingham home and watch the doctor administer the morphine injections which helped ease the pain that racked her emaciated body. After her death, Fred wore a black armband to school for a few days, but he never spoke of his loss. He never misbehaved and never joined in the raucous crudity of his contemporaries. Nor did he seem to have a girlfriend. He just worked and worked with an icy, relentless concentration. He began studying medicine at the University of Leeds, an immature and raw 19-year-old, when he met Primrose Oxterby, a 16-year-old window dresser. She became pregnant a few months later, marrying the young medical student three months before the birth of their first child, Sarah. They went on to have three more. Shipman became a GP in a practice in Todd Morden, West Yorkshire, in March 1974. He was aloof and reserved, yet he appeared to have an encyclopedic medical knowledge, and his energy was boundless. Then he began having blackouts. Shipman said he had epilepsy, but the real reason was uncovered by chance. One day, a receptionist from the medical practice was in the chemist's shop across the road from the surgery, chatting with friends. She noticed the book detailing the prescription of dangerous drugs was open. Dr Shipman had been prescribing prodigious quantities of a narcotic drug called pethidine. Shipman admitted his addiction and was dismissed from the practice and disciplined by the General Medical Council. It ruled that he could continue to work as a doctor as long as he carried on being monitored by a psychiatrist. Shipman also appeared in the local magistrate's court and was fined £600 for dishonestly obtaining and unlawfully possessing a controlled drug. In 1977, Shipman applied for a vacancy in the Donnybrook Medical Centre in Hyde. He was candid about his past problems with pethidine and his conviction, assuring those interviewing him that all of that was now well behind him. I'm off the drug, he said. I don't use it. You will have to trust me. Certainly, he impressed his new colleagues with his energy, quickly establishing himself not simply as a good doctor, but about the best in Hyde. He was particularly attentive to his elderly female patients. But colleagues noted that Shipman could be rude with subordinates and those who disagreed with him. Shipman also pitched into a wide range of community activities, rising to be area commissioner for the St John Ambulance. 
He was also active in the parent-teacher association at his children's school. But he stunned his colleagues when, after some 14 years, he decided to set up in practice on his own. The departure was not pleasant. Spotting a chink in his partnership agreement, Shipman set up a surgery close to the Donnybrook practice and took with him his 2,300-strong list of patients. His former partners were hit financially with his refusal to pay his share of the tax bill that was levied on the practice. They seethed but were powerless to do anything. Shipman soon built his patient list to new heights. In mid-August 1998, news of the police inquiry leaked to the newspapers. The result was uproar and an outpouring of community support. As growing numbers of journalists and photographers descended on Hyde, they were sometimes accosted by enraged patients. Dr Shipman is a marvellous doctor, one said. Why don't you leave him alone? Even Detective Inspector Egerton was confronted. You've got the wrong man, copper, one woman said, spitting in the gutter. Peter Wagstaff, 49, was one of Shipman's defenders. The operations director of a home furnishings company in Oldham, Wagstaff remembered vividly one occasion when the doctor turned out on a bank holiday Monday to see his unwell daughter. Another time, when his second daughter was born and his wife had just lost her father, Shipman arrived at their home totally unheralded. So when Wagstaff lost his mother Kathleen in December 1997, the family raised £325 for Shipman's fund for buying equipment for the surgery, asking mourners for donations rather than flowers. With the cheque, Wagstaff enclosed a note. It was comforting to know you were with her during her final moments. We couldn't ask for a finer, more caring doctor. Towards the end of August, Postles took a phone call from Julie Evans, a toxicologist at the Forensic Science Service Laboratory in Chorley, Lancashire. The levels of morphine found in Kathleen Grundy's body, she said, are consistent with that found in cases of overdose. Postles had already suspected poison, nevertheless he was surprised. He thought that morphine, unlike insulin, potassium or some other hard-to-detect substance, was among the least likely of poisons to be used in a killing. Even he knew that it left traces that can last almost indefinitely, and if he knew, Shipman surely did. The time had come to interview their suspect. The police station at Ashton-under-Lyne is a modern, three-storey glass-fronted building, but interview room number one is a stark affair. There are no windows and the fluorescent lighting is protected by a grill. The only furniture is a wooden table and four plastic chairs in the middle of the room. As Shipman took his seat on the afternoon of September 7, 1998, he betrayed no hint of nervousness or fear. Next to him was Anne Ball, his solicitor. Across the table were Detective Sergeant John Walker and Detective Constable Mark Denham. They turned on the tape recorder and began the questioning. Could Dr Shipman account for the presence of morphine in Kathleen Grundy's body? Perhaps, he responded, she might have become an illicit user. Shipman was happy to take the officers through his medical notes. Pupil small, dry mouth, possible drug abuse again, he read. The patient denies taking any drug other than that for irritable bowel syndrome. Warming to this task, Shipman said, I'm sure you're well aware that drugs like morphine, heroin, pethidine all cause constipation, all cause small pupils. Turning back to his medical notes of November 26, 1996, he continued, Irritable bowel syndrome again. Shall I do blood tests and check the urine? Really difficult as she denies everything and is not really at risk. 
the detectives weren't impressed. Many of Shipman's notes had been squeezed onto the ends of paragraphs and in the margins of Mrs Grundy's records. Postle's team had already suspected they might have been placed there later. Shipman said that details of her case were in his computer. Rather pompously, he said, I'm a firm believer that the concept of GP and computerisation is being held back by finance, underdevelopment and political decisions by government. That doesn't stop me computerising my practice. But what the good doctor apparently never realised was that the exact time and date of his computer entries were on his hard drive. And while Shipman was being interviewed, a police specialist team was copying that hard drive. It didn't take long to establish that many of Kathleen Grundy's records, some ostensibly made during consultations months and years earlier, had actually been entered into the computer on the day of her death. Later that day, Shipman appeared before Detective Inspector Stan Egerton. Harold Frederick Shipman, you are charged that on 24th of June, 1998, you murdered Kathleen Grundy at her home at 79 Joel Lane Hyde, contrary to common law. After the initial shock reverberated through the community, other people were now coming forward, many of them relatives of elderly women, all Shipman's patients, and all of whom, so their families said, had died under circumstances alarmingly similar to those of Kathleen Grundy. Postle's team grew, reaching up to 60 officers, typists and indexers. Stan Egerton was having a drink one evening at the Hyde Club when taxi driver John Shaw approached him and asked for a quiet word. The story he related was a strange one. Shaw told Egerton he had an extensive list of elderly female customers, often widowed or living on their own, whom he chauffeured round the town on a regular basis. Many became friends rather than just customers. He would fix a gate, change a fuse, do the odd DIY chore. He was therefore hit hard when he heard the death of one of his customers, a 73-year-old woman. She had always seemed so fit and well. As she suffered from arthritis, he used to carry her shopping into her kitchen after her regular Wednesday morning trip to the shops. But then there were other regular clients who had also seemed active and healthy, and who suddenly died. At some point in 1996, Shaw remarked to his wife, Kath, You'll never guess what. And she finished the sentence for him. Another shipman patient. He had been keeping a list of all the customers he had lost, who had also been patients of Dr. Shipman, a man he had never met. Like many other people in Hyde, however, he found it almost impossible to suspect this most trusted member of the community of any wrongdoing. He tried to block the matter from his mind. But now the death of Mrs. Kathleen Grundy, another one of his customers, was being investigated, he could remain silent no longer. How many have you got on the list? Egerton asked him. How many do you want? Shaw said. I've got a list of about 20. Bloody hell, Egerton exclaimed. From observations made by his team, Postles surmised that Shipman's arrogant and condescending manner became even more pronounced in the presence of women. And so, as he was led into the same interview room for his second interrogation on October 5, the doctor found himself facing Detective Constable Marie Snetinsky and Detective Sergeant Mark Waring. They began questioning him about Mrs Winifred Meller, who had died on May 11, 1998. According to Shipman's records, she had a history of angina. Waring, can you indicate to me how severe the angina was? Shipman, she had no signs of congestive heart failure and she only got the pain if she rushed, but it was lasting two to three minutes. Waring, 
but from the progression you've noted on your records, this was not something that was going to be unexpected. Skillfully and exhaustively, the detectives walked the doctor through his diagnosis of the condition and the various dates on which its progression had been noted by him on his surgery's computer system. Finally, they ambushed. Waring. Detective Sergeant John Ashley works in the field of computers, and he has gone into this computer of yours in some depth, and what he's found is that there are a number of entries that have been incorrectly placed on this record to falsely mislead and to indicate this woman had a history of angina and chest pains. What have you got to say about that, Doctor? Shipman. Nothing. Waring. I'll just remind you of the date of this lady's death. Mrs. Winifred Meller, May 11th, 1998. Perhaps you can explain to me then why at 3 minutes and 39 seconds after 3 o'clock that afternoon you have endorsed the computer with a date of October 1st, 1997, which is 10 months prior, with chest pains. Shipman. I've no recollection of me putting that on the machine. Waring. It's your passcode. It's your name. Shipman. It doesn't alter the fact that I can't remember doing it. It was becoming increasingly clear that the doctor was now faltering, nearing breaking point. His solicitor Anne Ball broke in. Can we have a consultation at this stage, please? Certainly, Waring said, switching off the tape. As the two officers left, Shipman fell to his knees sobbing. Soon after, a doctor pronounced him unfit for further interview. Driving to work in October 1998, Peter Wagstaff noticed the newspaper billboards. Dr. Shipman, three more bodies to be exhumed. Now he began to wonder, could the police really have got it so wrong? Wagstaff went back over the circumstances of his own mother's death. They were so traumatic, so bizarre, that he had no trouble recalling every detail of that afternoon on December 9, 1997. It began with a call from the Dowson Primary School in Hyde, where his wife taught. Shipman had just been there with the tragic news that her mother, Anne Royal, had suddenly died. His wife had already rushed off to her mother's home. Wagstaff was on his way to meet her there when his mobile rang. It was his wife, in near hysterics. My mother is okay, she's fine. Then she added, maybe it's your mother who has died. Wagstaff pulled over to the side of the road and called his mother. Shipman answered, apologising for the appalling mistake. It was Peter's mother who had died. Kathleen Wagstaff, Shipman explained, had rung his surgery, then had a heart attack. When Peter Wagstaff reached her home, he found his mother still slumped in her favourite armchair. The next day, Shipman explained how, after being summoned by Kathleen, he found her grey and sweaty and slightly blue round the lips. I took her pulse and found it erratic, he said. I realised then that there was something seriously wrong, so I rang for an ambulance. He went outside to get something from his car, but by the time he returned she was dead, so I cancelled the ambulance. At the time, Peter Wagstaff had not questioned anything that Shipman said, but now, for peace of mind, he rang the local ambulance service to ask if theirs was the number a doctor would call in an emergency. It was. Wagstaff then asked, Do you have any record of a call from 14 Rock Gardens, G Cross, on December 9th, 1997? After searching their files, they could find none. There's only one way we can clear this whole thing up, Wagstaff told his wife. Ring the telephone company. BT agreed to supply a complete list of all the calls made from his mother's telephone on December 9, but warned that it might take a while. A couple of weeks later, Wagstaff was on his way to work when his mobile rang. 
It was his wife who had opened that morning's post. He's done it, she said bluntly. BT has no record of any calls made from your mother's home to Dr Shipman's surgery or to the ambulance service that day. In a specially designated incident room at Ashton Underline Police Station, a special plastic film was put on the windows. It allowed Postle's investigating team inside to see out, but no one on the outside to see in. Meanwhile, large whiteboards on the walls were filling up with details on the new cases. In the case of Pamela Hillier, Dr Shipman had added six new entries to her computerised medical records in the space of six minutes, just two hours after her death. This was to build a picture of her suffering the sky-high blood pressure that would have led to the stroke that ostensibly claimed her life in February 1998. Chillingly, with 57-year-old Maureen Ward, all the details consistent with a later death from a brain tumour, headache comes and goes, dull, nauseous, legs not steady, were inserted on the computer just 45 minutes before she was to die. In the meanwhile, Shipman's story about Kathleen Grundy had been unravelled. Forensic evidence proved that Grundy could not have been taking drugs on her own. A sample of her hair showed that she was morphine-naive, that is to say she had no history of taking the drug. No one felt comfortable with the ghoulish procedure, but 11 more bodies were exhumed. In every case, the proximate cause of death was morphine toxicity. By the beginning of October 1998, Postles felt they had enough evidence to charge Shipman with the murders of Winifred Meller, Joan Mellier and Bianca Pomfret, and then later in the year with the murders of Marie Quinn, Ivy Lomas, Jean Lilly and Irene Turner. Even when the suspected victims had been cremated, it was still possible to bring a similar fact charge. This is where the circumstances of an offence are so close to the methods of a suspect in other cases as to justify a charge. One of the advantages of this approach was that Postle's team would not be limited by time, as with an exhumation. Marie West, for example, had died nearly four years earlier and so her remains would have deteriorated considerably. And the drugs? Police found four amples of diamorphine in a back bedroom of Shipman's house. It was later established that these had belonged to a former patient who had died over three years before. Shipman was unable to explain why he had not disposed of them. Through assiduous sleuthing, the police eventually located many more patients, 28 in all, from whom Shipman had managed to get the drug. One was 54-year-old James King. The local hospital diagnosed him with cancer of the urethra in 1996, and King alleges that Shipman then prescribed him so much morphine that he became addicted to the drug. In January 1997, King insisted on being referred to a different hospital for a second opinion. Tests there showed that not only was he clear of the cancer, he had never had it. King says that yet another six months passed before Shipman chose to pass on this news, meanwhile collecting King's prescription and keeping some of the drugs for himself. By that time, King had become impotent and lost his job. Pale and thin-looking, his grey suit hanging loosely off his shoulders, Shipman seemed a diminished man as he climbed the steps from a holding cell to emerge in the dock of Number 1 Court in Sessions House, Preston. Behind the oak railing in Centre Court, the dock's spacious red leather benches seemed to swallow up the solitary figure. The walls of the courtroom were dark green tiles, topped by oak panelling alternating with full-length portraits of judicial notables from the past. 
Above was a delicately illuminated white, corniced ceiling with a central splash of stained glass. Behind the dock was the public gallery in which Primrose Shipman would sit every day of the trial with at least one of her four children. And outside the court, she ran a gauntlet of some 300 journalists from around the world, to whom at times she smiled, but never uttered a word. All stood as Mr Justice Forbes strode into the court on October 5, 1999. Shipman faced 15 counts of murder and a further charge of forging the will of Mrs Kathleen Grundy. Prosecutor Richard Enriquez QC laid out the case. None of those buried nor indeed cremated, he said, were prescribed morphine or diamorphine. All of them died unexpectedly. All of them had seen Dr Shipman on the day of their death. Enriquez continued, There is no question of euthanasia or what is sometimes called mercy killing. None of the deceased were terminally ill. The defendant killed those 15 patients because he enjoyed doing so. He was exercising the ultimate power of controlling life and death and repeated it so often that he must have found the drama of taking life to his taste. Once the trial got underway, Shipman recovered much of his old aplomb. As many of the witnesses were being cross-examined, he took copious notes on a foolscap pad as if attending a conference on a patient. Though Angela Woodruff was herself a solicitor, her time in the witness box was unsettling. Occasionally, overcome by the detail of some memory of her mother, she would murmur, Just a minute, please. Fighting for control, she would drink from the glass of water on the oak witness stand. Shipman's defence counsel, Miss Nicola Davies, attempted to plant in the jury the idea that there had been some kind of rift between Angela Woodruff and her mother. Woodruff was adamant there had been no falling out. Intending to buy a new car, Kathleen Grundy had been planning to give her old one to one of Angela's two sons. She loved my sons to pieces and they loved her to pieces too. Shipman's testimony was, in the main, polished. Questioned about the presence of morphine in Mrs Grundy's body, he opined, she was taking an opiate, codeine, pethidine, perhaps morphine. Then he added smugly, abuse of drugs in the elderly is becoming recognised. Why had he backdated his computer records? In order to bring his files up to date when the patient told him when they'd first noticed the symptoms. It was just coincidence, Shipman said, that he was making an unrequested call to the home of Nora Nuttall, minutes away from her death. As it was with Marie West... Lizzie Adams, Marie Quinn and Kathleen Wagstaff. As the trial ploughed on, coincidence piled on coincidence, similarity on similarity. But his defence finally seemed to run into the sand during cross-examination on the death of Mrs Ivy Lomas. She had lost consciousness while lying in his surgery treatment room and Shipman said that he carried out heart massage and mouth-to-mouth resuscitation for 15 minutes. He couldn't revive her. But he left her there lying dead without telling his receptionist, because, he testified to the court, to tell her in front of three other patients I thought was inappropriate. Questioned by Enriquez, Shipman agreed that the morphine level in Mrs Lomas's body was so high that death would have taken effect within five minutes. Enriquez, if this lady died at 4.10pm, she must have been administered or administered to herself the drug between 4pm and 4.10pm, mustn't she? Shipman, You can put the evidence that way, and yes, I'd agree. Enriquez asked, and Shipman said he agreed, that he had not seen the patient administer the drug to herself. He hadn't left her alone in the surgery, and nobody else had been present. 
Enriquez. How did she get the diamorphine in her body? Shipman. I have no knowledge. Enriquez. Dr. Shipman, there is simply no explanation, is there? Shipman. I do not know of any explanation. Enriquez. Save for your guilt? That's what you're saying, Shipman said, and I disagree with it strongly. I didn't administer anything to this lady, and I have no idea how it got into her body. But as he stood in the witness box, it seemed to those in court his eyes had the look of a broken man. In her closing speech, Defence Counsel Nicola Davies did her best to depict her client as a man who went that extra mile for patients, often calling on them unexpectedly. Keeping records was not Shipman's strong point, Davies said, as he was more interested in the patients than the paperwork. After 57 days of evidence and the testimony of more than 120 prosecution witnesses, the jury took a week to render their verdict. On January 31, 2000, they found the accused guilty of all 15 charges of murder and the forgery of the will. As the verdict on each victim was announced, relatives cried out or sobbed in anguish. Shipman barely reacted. Mr Justice Forbes did not mince his words. You murdered each and every one of your victims by a calculated and cold-blooded perversion of your medical skills, he said. I have little doubt that each of your victims thanked you as she submitted to your deadly ministrations. The sheer wickedness of what you have done defies description. After passing 15 life sentences and a four-year sentence for the forgery, the judge said, My recommendation will be that you spend the remainder of your days in prison. Why did Fred Shipman murder Kathleen Grundy and so many others? We considered all the possibilities, said Bernard Postles. Greed, revenge, sex. Money appeared to be the motive only in the Kathleen Grundy case. From Franklin Prison, near Durham, Shipman will not say. He has refused all interview requests, including one from Reader's Digest. Says Angela Woodruff, maybe in some part of his mind he still feels in control of others, in never revealing how many he killed, or why. Like so many others in the town of Hyde, Peter Wagstaff keeps coming back to the theme of trust. The doctor is the last person in the community who you would suspect, particularly one who could seem so committed, so kind. It was the ultimate betrayal. In June 2001, a public inquiry into Shipman's 28-year medical career was opened at Manchester Town Hall. On July 19, 2002, High Court Judge Dame Janet Smith delivered decisions in 494 cases, concluding that the Hyde GP killed at least 215 people. In an audit by the Department of Health, conducted by Professor Richard Baker of Leicester University, it was determined that the real minimum number of Shipman's victims was probably 236. Despite all the evidence, Shipman himself continued to plead his innocence. On 13th of January, 2004, the eve of his 58th birthday, Shipman hanged himself in his cell at Wakefield Prison in West Yorkshire. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia.